Welcome to Up My Hockey with Jason Podolan, where we deconstruct the NHL journey, discuss what it takes to make it, and have a few laughs along the way. I'm your host, Jason Podolan, a 31st overall draft pick who played 41 NHL games, but thought he was destined for a thousand. Learn from my story and those of my guests. This is a hockey podcast about reaching your potential. Hello there, everybody. My name is Jason Padol, and I'm super happy to be here with you today. Uh, I'm an ex-NHLer, former pro for 10 years, who now helps young athletes realize their potential as a high-performance mindset coach. And I am here today as a podcast host, because that's another hat that I like to wear. And I I host a podcast called Up My Hockey with Jason Padolan. And that's where the good people here at the Coaches site saw me and enjoyed the content that I was producing and really liked the conversations. And they said, hey, we'd love to have you come on to our conference and interview a head coach. Uh, Would you be interested? And I definitely said yes. I really love what the Coaches site was doing and was really proud and honored to to be a part of this great weekend. So... You know, in my pro career, in my 10 years, uh, one of the benefits of being being somebody that maybe didn't aspire uh, to all the accolades that they were supposed to and being traded and playing on a lot of different teams is that I went through a lot of adversity. Uh, I had to manage uh, circumstances that were sometimes felt like they were out of my control. And I realized along the way that a lot of what we do as hockey players is managing opportunities and managing situations where we're not getting the opportunities that we want, which comes down to the mental game, which comes down to the mindset side of sports. So in doing what I do now, I really love cultivating conversations about mindset, about the human aspect of the hockey player, because we we all have gladiators. We're all these gladiators when we're on the ice and we, we're, we're stoic and we're prepared and we're fierce and we're competitive. But there is a human being inside that gladiator that, you know, has anxiety, that has fear of judgment, that doesn't want to make mistakes, that wants to be liked by his teammates and by his coaches. And when we're trying to manage all these, all these uh, situations, all these emotional circumstances inside a game where we're trying to get results, it can be a little confusing. And as coaches, which most of you, I assume, are going to be watching this today, you need to get the most out of your players. Well, how do we do that? Right. How do we do that? And that's where I try to guide this conversation today. Uh, One of the other uh, uh, benefits of me being being a suitcase, as I call it, is that I played with a ton of different athletes and I played with. Uh, or for a ton of different coaches. And today my guest is one of my former coaches back in the 99-2000 season when I was uh, with the uh, Lowell Lock Monsters. Uh, Bruce Boudreau was just coming up to the AHL after a championship in Mississippi. And uh, Bruce was nice enough to pick up the phone and say, yeah, I'd love to come on and have a conversation with you. And, and Bruce is the perfect guest, I felt, for today's conversation because in you know, in keeping what Up My Hockey is as a podcast, uh, being true to that, I knew that Bruce Bruce isn't necessarily an X's and O's guys. You know, he can talk forecheck and he can talk penalty kill strategy and and, uh, power play sequences. But what he really likes to talk about is the emotional side of the game. He's a gut feel coach. He's a guy that, that wears his heart in his sleeve. 
And that's what I like to talk about too. So today's episode is really quite fantastic. It's great for the players and it's great for the parents. And it's also great for the coaches here in the audience because we start talking about things like how to manage superstars. Uh, We talk about things like how do you balance development and the desire for winning? Because sometimes you're in leagues that you need to try and do both. Uh, We talk about how to create your inner circle uh, when you're a head coach. Who who do you get around you and who are you looking for when you're trying to build that team? Another thing that we dive into is how to manage superstars. We all know in today's day and age that coaches become more expendable than the best player, let's say, or the star player. So how do we get these players to develop all the while, you know, keeping the integrity of the position, not making them upset or mad or angry or adversarial and getting the most out of them and earning that trust of that superstar. So we dive into a ton of great things, not to mention also the evolution of coaching, like how to get better yourself, how to, how to frame that as a way that yeah you know what if you're not if you're not in uh, in growing you're dying and I think Bruce is a great example of that for how long he's been around the game and and how uh, you know three teams and geez I think 15 years and uh, I'm sure he'll get picked up and uh, and be coaching soon but Bruce is a real charismatic guy he's an awesome guy to be around he has great engaging stories and I know you're going to love this interview Uh, to find out more about me and what I do you can follow me uh, on Instagram at Jason Padolan I also have a parent group uh, on Facebook that I'm really, really proud of where we help develop uh, the athletes of, of these parents that are trying to navigate the hockey world, uh, bring in some guest experts on there. That's a great place to follow me or my website, upmyhockey.com. Uh, and definitely, obviously, tune into the podcast because there's amazing guests there talking about their stories and their experiences and their challenges in navigating this world of hockey and how they got to the highest level. Whether you're a coach or whether you're a player, uh, these stories all apply. So um, without further ado, I'm really excited to bring you my old coach, my friend, and an amazing guest with a ton of experience and a ton of knowledge in this great sport, Mr. Bruce Boudreaux. Hello there, everybody, and welcome back to Up My Hockey with Jason Padon for another episode. This is episode 35. No, check that. This is episode 36. Don't want to shortchange ourselves here. Uh, Episode 36 and counting. We are the podcast called Up My Hockey. We are currently the number 30 rated podcast in Canada for hockey. I'm super proud of that. We just broke through that rank the other day. Uh, And I want to thank all you listeners out there. Uh, I'm sure you know, maybe you don't know, but there are hundreds, thousands of podcasts out there with different levels of distribution and notoriety and uh and backing and support and for this podcast to be produced by me and one other guy to have zero paid sponsors to have zero media backing as far as distribution as far as promotion as far as dollars spent i think is like really really powerful and amazing and i don't know what to say other than like wow and thanks. And obviously what we're doing here is working. Um, the conversations are obviously enjoyed and I enjoy having them. So it is such a win-win for me after every interview I have, like the rest of the day, I am jacked. Like I love it. It inspires me. It, uh, it pumps me up. 
and it really aligns me every time with what it is that I'm doing right now when it comes to the Facebook group and when it comes to my clients and helping people navigate the space of hockey because I really do believe the conversations matter and the experience of others matters. So really exciting there. Thank you so much for everyone who is choosing to download, to listen, to listen right now. Again, I always ask you guys in the middle of the episode to share and to review and to like and you know that is really how to continue to support this thing once again without any financial backing backing this podcast this is just my time and me sourcing clients and guests and finding finding people uh that i think are going to be great stories and share those stories with you so um yeah as far as your part i mean continue to do what you guys are doing if you guys listen you're doing me a favor and if you share on your social media you're doing me a favor you're talking to your friends you're doing the uh the podcast a favor and i appreciate every one of you who is doing that uh, but without further ado we should talk about today's episode because today's episode is a bit special in more ways than one not only do we have on bruce boudreau who has been in the nhl forever uh almost like 15 years i think currently not employed as he was let go by the Minnesota Wild, but I believe he is uh, the, the second most winningest coach in NHL history as far as win percentage is concerned of coaches over 800 games coached. Like he, I mean, he is a force uh, as far as that is concerned. And it's a real, real honor to have him on. But the genesis of this is a little bit different because uh, a site by, uh, I mean, uh, a group called the, the Coaches Site, which is run by Aaron Wilbur. Aaron Wilbur is CEO of the Coaches Site, uh, reached out and enjoyed what we were doing here on Up My Hockey. He he enjoyed the interviews. He liked the content. Uh, he thought what was going on here was pretty good. And the coaches site has an annual summit every year. And this year, because of COVID, uh, they couldn't do it in person. So they were holding it virtually. And they asked if I could uh, or would be willing to interview an NHL coach for their coaches summit, which goes out to their membership base and, uh, you know, which, which spans the globe, really. And uh, I couldn't have been more honored and I couldn't have been more thankful. So that was the impetus of this conversation. So I reached out to Bruce Boudreau, who I thought would be a great guest. Uh, a former coach of mine uh, back uh, in the days of uh, the, where were we? Lowell Sound Taggers. It was his first uh, season coming up from uh, after winning a championship in the East Coast Hockey League with Mississippi. Uh, he stepped his foot in the AHL and, and, uh, and I had an opportunity to play for them there before his, his time uh, in the NHL. So he agreed because Bruce is such an amazing guy. He agreed to come on and chat. And what you're going to listen to today is the conversation that aired uh, at the coaches uh, site virtual summit. So we were a part of that, uh, a part of their vast array of hockey experts that were involved in this thing uh, that we're talking about all types of great uh, subject matter. I totally encourage you guys to check out uh, the coaches site and the programming there. They, They offer a lot of great resources for coaches and parents as well, quite frankly, and even players who are really curious and want to get a different angle of what coaches are thinking and doing. I think it's a, it's a great resource for everybody. But uh, one little disclaimer here about the episode. I do ask Bruce in this episode about an event that happened while I played for him. And it caught him a little bit off guard. And and since it's been aired, I've had quite a few people reach out and it kind of got a little bit of attention. And and, uh, it was a situation, I just want to provide a little bit more color that I wasn't able to in the episode where I was, had just been um, sent down from LA and I was in, uh lowell with with the uh with the sound taggers there and we had a split team so there was half the team was from la and half the team was from the islanders as far as prospects were concerned and that year 
uh, we were doing okay. We were chugging along. We were a little over 500, but I was uh, the team's leading scorer. I was the team's leading scorer and also the team's leading point getter. I think I had maybe 10 more goals uh, than second place guy on our team. And at that point in the season, LA Kings called me up for their playoff run, which is somewhat normal, you know, uh, in the situation of they're going, they need to have some guys uh, that that have the ability to play if somebody gets hurt of the regular. So I was called what is called a black ace. So they uh, they got I got called up for this playoff run. So I was gone for roughly, I think, three weeks, two to three weeks. And uh, and LA ended up losing, I think, in six games that year. I didn't play in any games, but I was up practicing with the team and traveling with the team and and doing what you do as a black ace. And meanwhile, the boys down in Lowell started the playoffs. They finished their last couple of regular season games and they started the playoffs and they ended up sweeping the first round of the playoffs. So they won three games to nothing. I think it was over St. John. I got sent down and on my return, I couldn't get on the ice. And it was the weirdest thing to me, like it just didn't make sense. And it kind of still doesn't make sense. And which is why I took the opportunity to ask Bruce, because it was always something that kind of stuck with me. I didn't understand. Nobody explained it to me. I didn't know if I had done something that I had forgotten about, you know, that maybe I made somebody mad or maybe I missed curfew or who knows what I could have done. But I sat on the bench for four games and we got swept in the second round of the series that year. So I bring that up during this interview. And, uh, and of course, Bruce doesn't remember why. And he gives a really, uh, nice uh gentle answer um and but afterwards when the camera goes off or the microphone goes off we do we do end up talking about it again and he was he's such a great guy he's like i can't believe i did that to you he goes i have no idea why he goes that's why you learn as as you grow as a coach he goes i should have never done that and uh, and gave me and gave me crap for not going into his office and and talking to him so Anyways, that's that's that story there. I think you'll enjoy that little interaction from Bruce and I, and he has a couple other really colorful stories. So anyways, I won't waste any more of your time. Uh, we'll get you to the interview, but this is the interview in its entirety. So this is my introduction to the interview is included here and and the interview itself. So I hope you enjoy it. You mean, Bruce, there's a ton of stuff in here that Bruce shares that I know you're going to love. And in true up my hockey style, uh, we'll get right to it. So without further ado, I give you my interview. Uh, for the Coaches Sites Virtual Summit with Bruce Boudreau. All right, here we are for Up My Hockey, and sitting in front of me is one of my past coaches from the 1999-2000 season, which went on to much bigger things than the Low Lock Monsters, uh, and now has, geez, how many seasons? Almost 20, 15 seasons in the NHL. Yeah, uh, long time ago. Yeah, mm-hmm. a long time ago, which is so awesome. And uh, it's great to see your face, Bruce. Uh, thanks for joining us today. Hey, it's my pleasure, Jason. Awesome. Looking forward to this. Yeah. Um, like I said, a lot of listeners right now are going to be players and coaches. And, and you know, th- those who don't know your story, uh, maybe pre-coaching, uh, you were a hell, of a hell of a hockey player. You know, you were a high draft pick, Memorial Cup champion. Uh, you know, list, go, list goes on and on. AHL scoring leader. I think I can I can relate to you on a few of those levels because you were trying obviously to get to the NHL. That's where we all wanted to go, and you wanted to stick, I'm sure, and that's where you wanted to be. How how can you reflect on your playing days now, uh, looking back on that as as far as maybe not getting the uh, the accolades and the results you wanted at the at the NHL level? Well, it was simple to me um, as time went on. It wasn't simple at the time, um, but when you when you do come out and you're, you know, 
you're a high scorer and you've been on championship teams and that, then everything seems to come easy to you. Like, I mean, when you're 18 and 19 and 20, uh, everything just, you know, you don't even have to, it seems like you don't have to train. You can put your skates on and play and whatever. But I mean, what I found out is um, not doing that, uh, not training like I should, not uh, being probably in the condition that I should have been to be at the NHL level because it's a totally different condition. It's a, a you go from step uh, uh, B to A and it's a, it's a big jump. And I didn't realize the dedication that it took to be a full-time NHL player until maybe I was 27. And by 27, uh, it, you're not a prospect, you're a suspect at that time. And uh, if I had to go back over again, I would have a respected what I had to do uh, a, a lot more and what I would have had to do in the summer a lot more and taken the game a lot more serious when I when I played it. I just thought it was going to be a continuation of junior. Yeah, you're going to lead the league in scoring. You're going to win the championship. And and that's the way it was going to go. But once you get there and the veterans, they, they know in a hurry if you're not ready because they'll look down on you and they'll pull you aside and they'll they'll say kid you know what uh, you're in for a long ride and we're not going to give you a break so uh if i had to go over and do it all again that would be the two best two biggest things i could re- recommend to anybody mm-hmm. so i mean a physically gifted player and by physically i mean like from a talent standpoint you know, i mean you felt like you could put on the skates go out there and do your thing uh as we all know when we get up to those higher levels everyone's pretty darn good you know so there there is that there's that point where we have to make that decision. And again, I can kind of relate with that is like, I mean, how does this work here at this level? You know, and you said like the, the veterans would take you aside. Was there ever a conversation with a coach at that time that says, Hey, you need to do X, Y, and Z, or was it, were you kind of left on your own to try and figure it out for yourself? No, you know what, Roger Nielsen, uh, I remember getting into an argument with him one night, um, my first year in uh, uh, with the Leafs, uh, I was sent to Dallas and I, uh, won the scoring title or led the league in goals. And he came up to me and he said, you know what? You're never going to play in the NHL. And I said, I said, what? I just, I led junior in scoring. I broke all the records. And now I've my first year I'm leading the central league in scoring. What do you mean? I'm not going to play in the NHL. And he says, well, you don't play a 200 foot game. He says, you're not going to score 50 in the NHL. So you better learn how to play defense. And he taught me right from there that with the, you know, how to play uh, defense, what I should be thinking of, and the goals will come. So when I did get called up, I was never called up to be a number one center. I was, you know, when you get called up to the NHL from the minors, you're usually stuck on the fourth line. And so I better learn how to check because that's the way I'm going to be there. And Roger taught me that, and and it stayed with me. And I think that's part of uh, knowing both ends uh, at an early age. made me a, a lot better coach when I got to be able to, to coach. That's cool. Yeah. Cause Ro- Roger and I also had, he was the coach in Florida when I got drafted there. So I, I experienced uh, Roger Nielsen as a coach. That's interesting that we both crossed paths with that. Um, so, yeah. So going through, so, you know, you're, you're a player. I mean, you had some good results in the, in the NHL too. I mean, as far as a points uh, from a points perspective, the one year you, you did quite well there in Toronto and just couldn't necessarily stick. Was that, 
you know, was that still like, you know, it seems like you kind of started to figure it out. You got, you got some games. Was there, was there a mental aspect to the game? Was it maybe that like somebody up top just didn't like you or how, how do you think that, that well, all went? I guess it depends on who you talk to. Um, yeah. uh, with me, the, the one year I had 26 points in 24 games and I thought I was going great guns. This is, this is, this is it. I've made my breakthrough. And then they called up Stan Weir from Tulsa. Um, because he was making 150,000 a year and they sent me back down because I was making 195 or some stupid number back then and it seemed like every time I got to that stage where I was uh, playing well and scoring that they would look for somebody bigger and better and I, and I always thought that the way they thought was yeah you know what we got to get better so let's let's get Big, but back in the '70s and early '80s, it was a lot about size too. But I mean, so they'd say, "Let's let's get uh, let's get try to get better, and we'll get in Walt McKechnie, we'll get in Stan Weir, we'll get in all all these other guys, and then we've always got Boudreaux to back up because uh, he he doesn't mind going to the minors and he won't balk because he doesn't want to be traded because he wants to be a Leaf, and that's the way I felt uh, uh, it was. But um, you know, and I didn't. I never really, uh, I never once complained, and that's probably my problem because you don't get anywhere unless, unless you do some some bitching about uh, playing time or what what's going on. And and I was an easy easy sell because I just always wanted to be a leaf, so it didn't matter. I, I was just going to keep trying. Right. Um, I got traded to Toronto. You probably don't know my my story, but I got traded to Toronto as a first year pro uh, for Kirk Muller. So I ended up going to the Toronto locker room and didn't know any of the players there. Didn't know any of the coaches. Was essentially kind of lost. You know, when it got got traded out of the AHL, was doing well there and trying to manage. You know, all those new things of being a Toronto Maple Leaf and being an NHL player and still trying to perform on the ice was was challenging at at, at 21 for me. Uh, you now going on into the coaching ranks and being that guy similar to me that was, you know, trying to go up, trying to, trying to make your mark, trying to fit in. Do you have a little bit of a soft spot for those guys now? Like, do you try and go out of your way to make them feel as comfortable as possible? Because we know that that transition isn't comfortable a lot of the time. You mean the kids that are going up yeah. and down? Absolutely. Yeah. I, I think that's what's one of the things that's made me a, a better coach is because I think I understand uh, more about, um the ups and downs of everybody because i've been through every situation of the going ups the comings down the disappointment of getting sent down the disappointing of being in the minors the coming up and wanting to and when i was you know when i in the in the nhl when you take that young guy trying to you know just curb his enthusiasm a little bit and make him do the right things to become a real pro and uh i thought that was probably my my best strength that's great. Yeah. I, I listened to a past interview with you and you spoke about Mike Green when you when you you know you had him in the minors and you also had him in the NHL and, and saying that he seemed to respond better uh you know to a pat on the back and maybe if he wasn't quite so nervous about making mistakes. Uh could you relate to that as a player as well? Like when you got to that bigger level that you were trying not to screw up as opposed to try to make plays. And uh, maybe if you were in a different environment, that would have given you more opportunity at, at the higher level. Uh, um, maybe, I, I don't know. Um, I tried to, you know, just do what the coaches said on the ice. I thought I was a pretty good student in that, in that respect. Uh, but I mean, 
I wasn't like Mike, whereas Mike, if I come down the bench and started screaming at him, he would have been a basket case for the rest of the game. So you learned early so that you had to come up if he was not playing well or something. You you grab him and you whisper in his ear that you need more and everything. I was more the kind of guy. And again, it was the 70s where coaches didn't really talk to you and that that if a coach told me I was brutal and everything else, I'd say, yeah, I'm going to show you and you go the opposite way. So when you get into coaching, the thing you learn is you've got to, you've got to learn everybody's sort of Achilles heel. And that was mine. If you challenged me, I would take the challenge. But if some guys like Ian Turnbull, you could, you could fire uh find him as much money as you wanted. He didn't care about any of that stuff. He just kept going. But if you took his ice time away, then that would really bother him. So, I mean, and it's, it's whether it's yelling at them or patting them on the back or taking ice time away or finding them or doing anything. It's a coach's job to find out what works for every individual because you got to do everything different for everybody. There are not, we're not all the same and we don't all click at the, uh, with the same thing. So it's an important uh, thing for a coach to learn about the players. And I always thought it made it uh, one of my best points was to make it a point of talking to every player, uh, making sure they were doing okay. Uh, you know, even, you know, sharing a laugh with them every now and again to show that you're human, but to show you care about them, it was really important. Yeah. That's super interesting because you mentioned sort of back in your era and, and we, we, we've all, you and I have lived through sort of different areas, me as a player and, and you as a coach, but the, what I heard from back in the day was, yeah, I mean, it was kind of a blanket approach. It almost seemed like back in the 70s, 80s, right? I mean, a coach would have a certain style and that style would then be kind of, you know, forced on the entire group of 20 that's in that locker room. And it seems like that sort of changed and adapted. And like you said, your own personal style is now, hey, I'm going to look at the individual people in this locker room and see what I can get, how I can get the most out of them. Do you think that that's that uh, evolution of coaching has, has kind of now taken over a little bit um, as a pair, opposed to what it was back in the 80s? Absolutely. Uh, I mean, in the, when I was playing, players didn't ask any questions. And the coaches really didn't talk to the players. You just did what they said. And usually it was a practice of three drills and skating. And that's it. Nowadays, the kids ask questions. They want to know why. Uh, why aren't I on the power play? Why aren't Why aren't I doing this? Why, they, they they have tons of questions. They want answers and they want honest answers. And and sometimes they don't like what they hear, but they accept it. And uh, I, I I think that's just the evolution of the way society has gone as well. I mean, we all the young the young people of the world are we're asking questions about how to be better and why am I not playing. Um, you know, above X player. And, uh, and then you have to tell them. And sometimes it works, you know, or they work harder, they, they get to the point or they say, No, I'm better than that guy. And that's the way it is. I mean, I had a player and when I left Lowell, uh, went to Manchester named Yannick LaHoo, and talented, but only wanted to play his way and there was no way you were going to change him he was going to be a lazy player and hope to get a lot of points and you tell him you're not going to play you're not going to make it nobody's going to want you and he wouldn't listen he eventually gets traded three or four times and goes to Europe at 23 years old whereas this kid could have played if he had a different mindset 
Yeah, mindset. That's such a big word in this in this era. And it seems like, you know, that the physical realm has been explored. And I know through your tenure, you've seen it, you know, even as a player, right, that now we started training the offseason. Now we're starting to get into nutrition and diet. And and these guys are just finely tuned machines. And I think the next the next level of the athlete seems like it's, you know, what can we do with our heads? How, how do we how do we get our, our head right and our mind right? And even from a practice perspective, how to incorporate these mindset traits that allow us to continue to want to get better. Is that something that you think like, that most of the coaches are looking at now as, as one of the game changers or one of the ways you can get a competitive edge? Um, you're talking about getting into their heads and well just the mindset, mindset side of like yeah how to get the most out of your players how 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 even from a culture side within the team you know to believe you have a competitive advantage maybe because you're doing things a little different thinking a little different well i just yeah i guess to answer that is uh, i don't really know it, the answer but what i do know is that you individually again have to find out some guys don't have any, you know, don't have a great education. You got to talk at a different level than a guy that's gone to Harvard and uh, knows, you know, knows a little bit more of the ways of the world, especially guys that go to college and versus guys that go to junior. Um, mm -hmm. Even though now junior, uh, you know, they offer uh, college scholarships and everything else. Uh, once you're done, it's a, uh, we never even heard of it when, when I was playing. So uh, you know, I don't know if that answers the question, but I mean, we're always trying to understand what the player is thinking because it's important. Like, I mean, mm -hmm. if you can, if you you are um, talking to a guy and he doesn't understand what you're talking about, you may as well be talking to the air. But if he can understand the idea of what you're trying to get across, then all of a sudden maybe he can go out and do it. Sure. You mentioned that the players uh, come in now and they ask more questions, which I think is great. And I imagine that the communication skills of, of a head coach or an assistant coach now are pretty imperative along with that, like you said, to get that message through. In some of the interviews that I've had in the past with either Jared Bednar or Brad Larson or some of these guys that are in the NHL, the level of accountability now goes up on the player, right? Because you ask a question, you might get an answer you don't like, but it's still something from the head coach, from the big boss that now wants you to do something uh, does that now separate some of these players like from the guys who are actually now accountable to what you want them to do and are willing to go and do it on a consistent basis and those that won't well you know what um if they're not accountable they don't play it's pretty simple in today's world uh, um you know i mean uh, and there's a level of accountability if you're Sidney crosby you can get away with doing some things a few times uh, uh that that aren't conducive. I'd use Connor McDavid as more of an example because he's a younger player and he's so great offensively. And when I watch him and watch him not doing his job in the defensive zone and they get scored on, then, I mean, he's, he's going to be okay with it because he's probably going to, his offense is going to uh, be much, uh, his good is going to be much better than his bad. So you, sometimes you take it, but you make him aware of it. And you want him to get better, but you're not going to sit Connor McDavid. Whereas if you're a fourth line guy and you go out and you're not going to score 100 points in a year, but you make that mistake defensively and you better be accountable or you're not going to play. That's the way you're going to play is not not lose your man. Like, I mean, I watched yesterday's games and no one's mentioned it on TV. I guess nobody wants to to be the bad guy like um, or the other night. It, Kadri totally missed his assignment. That's why that young Finn scored. Like, I mean, they duplicated on the same guy, which was not Kadri's job. And, uh, uh, but they, like the announcers all said, well, that guy slipped his coverage. We well, didn't slip his coverage. But I mean, if 
if this Nazem had already got a goal and assist during the course of the game and was playing great, he's their second line center. He'll get away with that. But if that was their fourth line center, uh, then you know you could probably see them looking to make a a, a change the next game if they had a, an opportunity to have a next game. Right. You you talk about a, a young Connor McDavid or you know a, a, an an older Sidney Crosby now at this stage and and as a head coach in the NHL having to manage superstars and also the personalities of those superstars. And there are different levels of, you know, maturity and mental development themselves. Just because they're amazing athletes doesn't necessarily mean that they're, you know, they're ready for leadership positions or know how to win or, or some of these nuances of the game. How do you, how do you go about, uh, you know, teaching a young Alex Ovechkin what it takes to maybe go beyond scoring the 50 goals, but also understanding how, how it, what it takes to to be a winner or to be a good leader well i mean it was uh it was difficult but doable because you had the fact that he didn't speak good english at the time and he was russian and when he came over here he came over here as a great scorer in uh in europe so i mean defense wasn't really his forte to to but i mean We'd have to show him on video. Like I, I went through different things of showing him privately on video, embarrassing him a little bit in front. But it was a fine line of embarrassing somebody and uh, on video and and making him say, "I don't want to play for him." So I mean, it's uh, uh, you have to find again. It goes back to that 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 communication thing and getting to know the guy personally, what would work with him and what wouldn't work with him. Um, I think if you look at Alex, when they won the cup, he became a much better player over time because he started to realize what the cup meant when you're 22 and you're the best player in the world and you're, and you're winning heart trophies and scoring 65 goals a year. It doesn't really matter in his mind, Oh, I get a chance. I'll get a chance to win the cup. I'll get a chance. But when you go now 10 years before you're getting that chance, you start to say, I don't need the criticism every day of not winning the cup and being out of here the the next day after we lose out to go to the play in the world championship. So uh, he learned and it was my job to to help him learn. And but it's also again, it's like a good teacher and a bad teacher in school. I mean, to me, you have to find out what makes that guy learn and what what's what is he going to retain rather than yelling and screaming and just going at it one way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I want to get I want to get into trust, but uh, for, first, I think uh, we'll transition maybe in just into your career. So, I mean, you left you left the the uh, the game as a player, got right back into it as a coach. Um, and won a championship in Mississippi, in Mississippi. And that was the year before uh, we, we ended up playing together in Lowell there when you got the head coach job in, mm-hmm. in Lowell. As a, as a coach now in, you know, you're in the East Coast League there, you know, how, how hard is it to balance, even maybe more so in the minor leagues, I'm not sure, maybe you can speak to this, but balancing the development of the players because they're not where they want to be either, so they want to improve, yet also wanting to win. Because it seems like as a coach, winning gives you opportunity to move on to the next level. Well, and I think it depends on what league you're in. Like uh, when we're in the East Coast, like I'm in Biloxi, Mississippi, there's not a lot of scouts that come to every game. And so it was about winning. But I had enough um, uh, uh, affiliates that I wrote reports on every player after every game. So some, you know, I mean, two or three times a year, LA would come down and, and see their players. And the biggest thing with me was giving them ice time 
and just you know correcting them and that's how i got the job in lowell because i we did good in mississippi and when i when my but I, what i realized here is is as all these young coaches you're going to grow and get better every every year my first year in lowell um i, I remember telling uh steve sterling who was my assistant there like i mean uh, i apologized to him maybe five years ago, maybe less than that, because I did the power play. I did the penalty killing and I did, I did, I wouldn't give anybody any, any um, uh, other jobs because in Mississippi or in the, in the low minors, and I was there for three years, you do everything yourself. So it's what you learn, right? I mean, you come up and I had to learn how to uh, uh, give other guys responsibility. And I mean, it took me a while and then all of a sudden, then when you get to the NHL, somebody else, an assistant does the power play, an assistant does the penalty killing. I would do all the, the pre-scouting and everything else. But delegating, it was was a difficult thing for me when I first got to the American Hockey League. And uh, it's amazing how much you learn from that first year to, you know, till 20 years later when you're when you're coaching in the NHL, uh, let alone drills. You know, I mean, uh nobody's telling you drills in the American league, but then, or in the, in the, in the East coast league, you're working on your drills from nineties and the eighties. And then you get there in the NHL, go to training camp and you see Andy Murray doing all these new drills, which you take and you add with yours. And, and uh, hopefully you just build up a book of, of drills and ways to teach. And then you've got your philosophy on what wins and what doesn't win. And uh, you go with that, that way. Is there as a player, yeah, I experienced it as a player. I mean, every level you go up, there's a, there's sort of a leveling up process, which you've kind of spoke to al- already, you know, uh, as you know, you're kind of comfortable, you win a championship. Now you're in this new league, you're in the AHL. Is there a little bit of a feeling out portion for yourself to like, to understand that? Yeah, I'm one, I'm good enough to coach here. Yes. I know how to coach here. I belong here. Is, is that, does that happen as far as a coach as well as it does with a player? A hundred percent. Like when I went to the, my first training camp in uh, L.A., uh, Andy Murray was doing an awful lot of the things that I believed in. And you'd go home at night and you go, hey, I can do this because what I was thinking, um, even though it was at the East Coast League level, is what the NHL guys are doing. So I'm on the right path. And I was believing that that was the right thing to do. So, I mean, you start with that, he makes you believe, and then you just keep growing and learning and learning. Gotcha. Yeah. I mean, I think that's probably one of the biggest keys because you talked about how the players are changing and you must have seen that from, you know, your first years there in the AHL and even your first time, uh, your first time in Washington there to, to what the players are like this year. I would imagine the personalities and the, the human beings inside the hockey players that ha- have changed. So you need to adapt with that with that change in in, in the personnel. I, I would assume. Well, if you don't change, you don't last. I mean, uh, uh, you know, I'm 65 years old and still hope to to get another job. But it's because I think uh, I think like a young guy. Um, I don't think I think like an old man sitting in a rocking chair and uh, that's that's the whole adapting thing and uh, I hope I hope you know I mean uh, that people think the same way that I that I can adapt I mean I had great relationships last year with the young guys and it and I don't think that that'll change Um, maybe I'm just not mature enough yet uh, to act older but I mean I think I'm I'm a young guy at heart and I uh, I think I can I can deal with those young guys. 
Awesome. I'm going to turn back to this year and maybe I'll put you on the spot. Maybe I won't. And I, I totally remember. I forgive you if you don't remember, but uh, when, when we were there with you, I was your leading scorer that year. I don't know if you remember or not. And I remember Steve being there. I remember. Yeah, I think I had 30. And then they called the LA Kings. I was down there essentially all year and the LA Kings called me up for their playoff run, essentially as a black ace. So I missed the last few games with Lowell. Uh, the Kings got eliminated in the first round. You guys in Lowell had won the first round. We won three straight over St. John's. And then I came back down. And uh, so it was and then, you. Yeah, yeah exactly. You. Okay. Yeah, there you go. So maybe you had this right. So it was one of those things you mentioned yourself, right? That uh, you as a player, sometimes you didn't maybe speak up enough or you wish you would have maybe scratched and clawed a little bit. Mm-hmm. You're, you're, I totally remember you as being an open door guy. And I remember you calling me in, you know, asking how whatever an off day went or what we got up to. And like, that was definitely your personality. So there wasn't, for me, there wasn't, uh, you know, I wasn't fearful of going into your office, but when I came back down after being with the Kings, I, I ended up being a fourth line role. Like I never, I never got on the ice and you played me a few times on the power play. And, and it was just, for me, it was really shocking because I didn't know essentially what happened yet. I didn't have the maturity or the parts, or maybe I just had a chip in my shoulder that I didn't walk in that office and, and ask you why do, do, do you remember why like I almost wondered if it was like a thing that came down from the top with the LA Kings and you weren't supposed to or something I I, I was just that was something that always baffled me and I was just wondering curious about the it. King the Kings ruined you <laughs> I, I, I can't remember at the time except the only thing I can think of possibly is we were rolling and mm-hmm. we we're and I didn't want to change things I mean um I mean we had one uh three games in a row uh, against uh, St. John's and Luongo was incredible during that, uh, during those three games. And then we played Providence and I think they beat us four straight. I don't know. um, uh, I don't know the reason Jason right now. I mean, uh, uh, I'd have to look at like old things and, and, and see, but I mean, the only thing I can think of is that I didn't want to upset the apple cart because we were doing well. Yeah, that would have been my only thing. And the Kings did the same thing um, two years later. They sent seven players down uh, after they got eliminated, and it just screwed up the whole chemistry of the team. Um, but I don't think – I'm pretty sure that wasn't the case here because, uh, right. uh, you know, but the, you like to keep things going. The same coaches are creatures of habit that if if you win, you don't change lineups. Uh, you do those right. kind of things. So, I mean um, – that would be the only reason because when you were here, you were our leading scorer, you were doing well. And, uh, you know, uh, so I, I have no idea why I did that. Maybe I no had a brain fart, you know, yeah, I, don't yeah. know. I don't, I didn't mean to put you on the spot. I just, one of those, all those questions that you have in your back of your head. And we ended up, I ended up signing somewhere else the next year and we just never played together again. So never had an opportunity to ask you. So I mm-hmm. thought, mm-hmm. uh, I thought I would, I would like to talk just about, you know, so then you go, you go from Lowell, you go to Manchester and I was talking about trust and building trust with the player. And, and I had Steve Kelly on as, as a past guest. And, and he told oh. me he was a really big fan of yours, as I'm sure you know. And he said, you know, you were one of the best, best guys he ever played for. And we go through a wall for you. And one of, the, one of the stories that he told was, he said, it was a night before a game. And they happened to be sitting, in a, sitting at, the, at the bar, him and, him and a buddy of his. And I'm not telling this out of school. He said this publicly already. It was nothing. It's pretty harmless. But it was past curfew. And. And he said, lo and behold, you walked in behind them. And he said, they kind of like did the little shoulder check and wasn't sure if you saw them or not, but you just kept walking and kind of did your thing and, and left. And, 
And so they didn't really know, right? You didn't say anything to them at the time, but the next day at practice at pregame skate, everyone came in for pregame skate and you made this, this announcement that it was going to be no pregame skate today, that some of you guys might need a little extra rest. So go get your extra rest and come ready tonight. And, uh, and, and Steve kill, I mean, killer said that, I mean, they, he had one of his best games of, of the season that day. And he said, you guys won. He said he was on fire. Like he said, he, like for that, for that moment, like he earned so he, he, you're in so much respect or you earn so much respect from him because he said so many coaches could have handled that way differently. Um, was that just, uh, is that an example of how you would build trust with your players? Like instead of doing it in the papers or sitting a guy out to allow them, you know, an opportunity to show that and prove that, yeah, okay, they made a mistake and uh, they can make it right. I, I think so. At that time, um, th that would have been something that I would have done. Uh, years later, uh, same thing happened with two, guys that I played with that now I coached and they were out after uh, curfew and I sat them out a game and I just thought at that point it was the right thing to do because I played with them if I hadn't have sat them out people would have thought that I could they're, they're getting away with you know uh, just because they knew who I was and they were my friend with Steve Kelly uh, uh, it's a different like he's one of those guys that I could tell him you stink you're awful and he's gonna look me in the eye and he's gonna go yeah I'll show you and I think that would have been more of it uh, yeah like he said okay he let me go but he also let me know that I knew that he was out so I better perform for him and, and Steve was one of those guys when I said earlier and one of my favorite players, maybe not a lot of other people's favorite players as a coach because he took really reckless penalties and every all the time. But I knew that his his good was if he wasn't slashing and hacking and playing in everybody's face, then he wasn't being Steve Kelly. And I needed Steve Kelly to be Steve Kelly. So I never worried about if he took a minor or two a game because his good was going to outweigh his bad. Now, if it didn't, there would have been different different ways to handle that. But, uh, um, uh, again, always one of my favorite players uh, because he had that will to win and that will to compete. And, uh, you know, for a scorer, he would fight anybody. He would you know, that's why he's a cop now, I think. Uh, <laughs> but he, he'd get right in everybody's face. And uh, I love that part about him because he was so competitive and he wanted to win at all costs. And uh, um, But I remember that now that you're talking about it, I mean, it's amazing how things slip your mind. But uh, it, I, I'm 100% sure it was because I wanted to let him know, like in the dressing room, very rarely in, in you can probably attest to this that I come in and say you and you and point guys out. I would say uh, I would say it as a team, knowing that the players knew who I was talking about and they would feel better that I didn't center them out and they would they would respect that. And they they'd usually play a little harder for me the next period. Hey there, everybody. Just a quick break from the conversation. We'll get you right back to Bruce. But once again, I want to take on the sports nets. I want to take on the TSNs, the ESPNs, the athletics. I'm so jacked that we are competing in this space against some big, big players. And we are doing this like this is like David versus Goliath right now. And we're David and we're rocking and we're rolling. And we are only doing it because you are choosing to listen and tune in. And you are also helping others find it by sharing the stuff I put out online, 
by talking with your friends, by reviewing on iTunes and rating it and talking about it. So please continue to do your part and let's be part of this movement and let's keep moving up the ranks here. I absolutely love it. It, it inspires me, it gets me motivated and gets me excited. So help me help more people and uh, do your part. Cheers, guys. Now back to the episode. Yeah, that's a great way, great way to go about it. With with your with your championship teams, I mean, you went you end up going to Hershey and you won another championship, and and lo and behold, right, like a season and a half. Well, you go to the finals again the next year, and and then the the season after that, you get your opportunity to the NHL. Uh, at that AHL level, I, I know I asked you this earlier, but I think it is a, a bit of a different beast because East Coast League isn't the AHL. In the AHL, you are trying to develop individual players to make that top team, right? That the, you're yeah. trying to you're trying to yeah. give them assets. So in doing that, and you're developing 20, 21 year old, 20 year old, two, uh, two year old kids, you, they're allowed to make mistakes there. I assume. I mean, like that's part of the process. But mistakes also don't always correlate with winning. As a AHL coach, how do you balance that, knowing that for you as an individual? Bruce Boudreau, who wants to go to the NHL, a Calder Cup's going to look real nice on my resume. But I also got to do my job here of, of maybe, you know, getting these younger guys uh, up to grade so they can go to the NHL, which might not lead to wins in the win column. How, how do you balance that? Well, it's it's sort of tough. But, I mean, the good teams and the good players learn from their mistakes. And so, I mean, that's how you win Calder Cups is because these good young players, they learn. The like I said, I had Yannick LaHoo, he didn't learn. And that's one of the reasons, even though we'd get a hundred over a hundred points every year in Manchester, when when push came to shove, I mean guys like that, no matter and you um you try the same things that you've done in the past and they weren't working with a guy like him. So it becomes difficult. But uh you talk about the Hershey teams. I mean, we had young players and they were good young players, but they all paid attention and they were a special group. And because a lot of them made the NHL and sometimes you get, you get lucky and you get a special group of guys and, and they're, and they're just, they want to get there. They want to pay attention and they want to do the right things. That's when it makes it easy. What it makes it tough is when the NHL team says, Hey, this young guy was a second round pick and you've got to, uh, you've got to play him 16 minutes a night, uh, every night. And so you try to do that because you want to do what the NHL team wants you to do. But at the same team, you've got to be cognizant that your other players around you, whether it's a veteran or whether it's a young guy, if they're playing much better and they know you're giving this guy the ice time, then um, it, you're they're, they're sitting there. They're going, that doesn't make sense. You know, like, I mean, how can we play? How can we win if you're giving this guy all the ice time? And, uh, because you know you have to and uh, the guys that are playing much better are sitting on the bench it's a it's a difficult thing and the one thing that George McPhee was great at he would phone Doug Yankston he said I don't care if he's a first rounder or 10th rounder he says you play the best players to help you win which made it so much easier for me I was just going to say that if, if, with that dot connect now that you've been around the game so long and you've probably seen both sides of it, the GM that wants to stick handle you and your decisions, you know, with the prospects you're allowed to play. And then also when you're allowed to give free reign and play the best players possible. I mean, uh, I'll go back to Scott Nickel there with the Nashville Predators. And that's one of their tenants in that organization is that bring up the best player because we want that culture and that locker room to be of such, right? That you're accountable mm. to your results. And I'm, we're going to reward the guys that are doing what we want them to do. Uh, 
did you find it easier working under that that environment as far as just building that philosophy and that culture in that locker room when you could reward the guys for doing the right things? It makes an awful lot easier on the coach because then you can make players way more accountable. I mean, um, like I said, I, uh, it was Kevin something. I even forget his, the assistant GM's name in, in L.A. now, maybe because I wanted to forget it. Um, but uh, uh, he uh, he he would send down play this guy this much, this guy this much, this guy this much. And he was always worried about development. Um, and they were good players. We had a lot of good players. But uh, at, at the same time, uh, other other guys sitting on the bench were playing better than these guys. And, y- you know, they would go, what the heck's going on here? And it made it more difficult. But when you went to Hershey and they say, play the best players, now the first round pick is not playing. He's coming into your office and saying, why aren't you playing? And you're pointing out the reasons that they're not playing. Now you've got the talent. You either get better and do it or you, you're not going to play. And, and even in, in Hershey, they would send guys like uh, Michael Neuverth was – sent to the East Coast League and and other guys that were sent to the East Coast League just because they weren't do they weren't pulling up their socks and it made South Carolina better because they wanted to get out of there but it made uh, it made us better too because they were now accountable for their actions and 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 I think that's the perfect way a minor uh, uh, an American League team to an NHL team, to their East Coast League affiliate should work. And and otherwise, if you keep giving this first-round pick from 2016 that you've now signed, and, you know, because you don't want to look bad making a first-round uh, pick mistake, uh, giving him 20 minutes of ice time every night, and the team's not su- successful, he, it's not only going to look bad on you, but the players are going to resent him. And that then that becomes an inlays a problem in the room, and you don't want that. Yeah, and I think you know, even from a player's perspective, that is what you need sometimes, right? Instead of just that carte blanche, you know, that there maybe is a fine line there too, right? That you just don't get ice time; you got to earn your ice time, and and uh, that maturation of that maybe that first round pick is good to watch and earn a spot in there, and and to you know, and and to to find his way to the NHL instead of being given his opportunity. I well, one of the interesting things I thought was was uh, hard to manage, and I can imagine it was maybe a bit hard to manage as a coach. When you're at that AHL level, nobody, almost nobody, really wants to be there, right? Like you're grateful mm-hmm. for being there, but you want to be somewhere else. And everyone's trying to get to the get to the show. And and when you're building a, a championship team in the minors, now you're having this pecking order within the organization because you I mean it's, you don't want to be playing behind somebody. You have to fill a role, you know, to to be able to to be a part of that puzzle piece that's going to get you that championship and to get guys to buy into the idea that when you win, you will be rewarded as an individual is really difficult yet time and time again, you can see it happening. Guys win championships and that team, those guys go on. A lot of guys go on to the NHL. They'll go on to extra contracts and same thing for you as a coach. How, how do you teach a player to believe in that process that, you know what, when we win, you will get what you want. Even if you don't think, like the ice time might be right or your role isn't quite what you want it to be. Um, there's a couple of ways you get, you know, you just keep preaching it. But one of the things I, I did um, a lot and it was mostly in Manchester and Hershey is I would show the guys the roster of championship teams in the, in the American league. And you can almost to a point go to almost every championship American league team and see within a year or two, seven to eight of those players are playing in the National Hockey League. 
And it's not always the leading scorers. It's not always the best players. It's it's guys that played their role. And and we did the same thing in, in uh, Hershey when uh, I was lucky enough. One of the reasons when I got called up to coach the following year that we started to have success was because uh, I had coached seven of them in Hershey. And they weren't the, the leading scorers. Dave Steckel was a fourth-line player. Boyd Gordon was a fourth-line player. Uh, Brooks Lyke was a, th- a third-line player. But these guys knew their roles and knew how to play the game. And that's why they made it, because they they balanced out uh, the, you know, the lineup. They weren't going to take Alex Ovechkin's place or uh, they weren't going to take Semmons place or Backstrom's place. So they knew how to, to, to back up and play their roles. And, and it was one of the main reasons, like the, the second year we got 121 points in the NHL. That's pretty good. No, that's amazing. Yeah, I know. That's amazing. You, you mentioned earlier about that, you know, Steve Kelly is one of your favorite players. And, and I always wondered that as far as, you know, there's a lot of players listening right now and, and they want to be that player, that coach's favorite player. Is there like a little ingredient? You mentioned competitive, and, and I would imagine that would stand out for any coach anywhere. You want guys that want to compete. Is that is that the quickest way to a coach's heart is to is to just show you want it more than other people? Um, that's one of the ways. The Probably the biggest way is responsibility. Like I could, if, uh, like in any league, like in, uh, in Anaheim, I'll go back to them first to uh, – Andrew Cogliano, I knew I could put him on the ice with Saku Koivu and Daniel Winnick, and good things were going to happen. There wasn't the, the uh-oh, uh, they may get scored on or they may score. Those were guys that you knew you could be responsible with here. Uh, in Washington, it was the Steckles, the Gordons, the these third and fourth lines. Coaches love these guys that sacrifice and give everything to the team and work. The, Jay Beagle was perfect at it. And, uh, uh, they, and they didn't ask for anything. They just went out and did the did their job they could push practice because the stars a lot of times don't push practice you need your, your worker bees to come out and make everybody else work jay beagle was the best i've ever seen at it and um and i'm sure he did the same thing with vancouver even though he's 33 years old but um uh that's who coaches really gravitate towards is those guys that block shots and and do all of the little things but don't get any attention i had um, one guy in hershey Quentin Lang never scored more than 10, 12 goals. And the next year I called him up and he spent the whole year in Washington as he would block shots with his face, with his every part of his body. He was hurt a lot of the time, but the players grew to love him. Coaches love that kind of thing. And um, those are the kind of players I think uh, we gravitate to. Everybody loves the guys that score 50 goals, but I mean, um, if they're good guys, you know, yeah. Some guys could score 50 goals and then be real dinks and, you know, not care about the rest of the team, not care about what happens. I think a guy like Alex Semin was more in that, that line. Um, but uh, the, 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 the grunge workers and the worker bees, they care about the team first and foremost. And that's why coaches like them. How special is it? You mentioned that sometimes, you know, the best player, best player in air quotes, meaning the guy who gets the most points for the most goals, those, those, those guys aren't the guys that push practice sometimes, you know, I, 
and then sometimes they are though, right? Like, I mean, I've heard the stories about Sidney Crosby that he's the guy that, you know, drives is, is the engine on that team. And he's also happens to be the best player. Uh, you, you were surrounded by some stars. I mean, how important or how amazing is it when that happens, when you're, when your best player is also your hardest worker, like imagine like building a team around somebody like that would be real special. Well, that that's how you win cups. When you get the luck of the draw and your best player is also the hardest worker. I grew up, um, didn't win a cup with him, but Daryl Sittler, uh, who was the captain of the Leafs, he was also the hardest worker uh, on the team. And I remember being called up one day and practice was over. We all worked hard and everything. But 30 seconds after the last whistle was blown, I was off the ice. And he came running down the hall after me, grabbed me by the collar and said, son, listen, you're going to get nowhere. You're going to be sent down again. I am the best player on this team, and I'm the first out and I'm the last guy to leave. You better learn how to work. And I've taken that. That's 1976, and I've taken that in my mind, uh, remembered it for, you know, 45 years now. And uh, But it was as good of as advice as I've ever gotten from anybody. And uh, And he was right. I was done. I wasn't doing the extra. And now you see when you – um there's been times when other players uh you know like this when the stars are aligned and you get that great player that he works on his game all the time then you've got something special sometimes you get the stars they want to get through practice then they're the first ones off and uh, they lose a little bit of respect whether they know it or don't know it from the players from the other players because the other guys are working so hard to get to half as good as they are. And, uh, and they can't do it because they're just not as good. So, I mean, that's, yeah. uh, that's, you know, a lot of these coaches want to get to where you've been to and, and, you know, deal, deal with these, with these NHL stars and the personalities, you know, at times, I wouldn't say at times, I think that the honest reality is, is that the coach is more expendable than that star player in a lot of circumstances yet you need that star player to be the person we're talking about, right? For you to have success as a team and for you to win the championships you want to you wanna win. How difficult is it to manage or how much do you push on those guys? Because you don't want to lose them, right? You need them, you need them to have them. And a lot of times those guys even understand how much clout they have, you know, yet still, you know, maintain that relationship. Is that a, is that a slippery slope sometimes? You got to handle it a little delicately, um, of course. Like when I had Getzlaff and Perry in their prime in in um, uh, Anaheim, I would call them in and ask for their advice one on one. You know, give them a little bit of information that wasn't really vital, but it made them feel important. Uh, you know, like uh, and I had it. Getzlaff was our captain, but I had him in and asking him questions uh, almost you know, once, at least once a week for probably more than that. And it made them, I think it made them feel special. It made me feel that our relationship was working, that they could come in and talk to me. There was times like after a while that Ryan would, uh, if we had a really bad period, uh, Ryan might be the last guy off the ice after the period. And he'd say, coach, don't go in. I'll take care of this. And, and I'd say, okay, Ryan, it's your team. You do what you know, you do what you have to do. And there was times where he could, he'd say, I can't do this because I'm not playing good either. And you can only do it when you're the star players that acknowledge the fact that they're playing good and they're not getting the support from the other guys. But Getzlaff was great at that. And, um, 
and and I always will use him as an example because uh, he, he was yeah he was as good as I've ever had doing that. That's really cool. I mean, you even talking about that having him be the captain and having him uh, you know be the leader. It's his team, as you called it. At the NHL level, does it depend on the organizations as far as the ones you've been involved in? As far like who says who the letters are? Is that your choice? Who's who's the season A's, or is that a collective kind of decision coming from up top, or, or does it depend on the organization? Well, in the one organization that I had a, a sort of something to do with is uh, we traded Chris Clark, who was the Washington's captain, to um, to Columbus for Jason Chimera. And then we were without a captain and I went and they had just Pittsburgh had just made Sidney Crosby captain. And it was the uh, it was the way that they were going with the young superstars being captain, whether you were ready for it or not ready for it. And I told George, I said, I think we, you know, it's Alex's team now. He's going to be here. He just signed a 13 year deal. So he's going to be here forever. I think we should make him captain. Now being from Russia, uh, I don't think Alex wanted to be the captain. He wanted to be the best player. He wanted to be the leader. All of those things were great, but he didn't know the little off ice things that you have to do as a captain. And uh, uh, it wasn't a problem because we, Mike Knubel would come in and he would sort of be the, uh, the voice uh, of captaincy of organizing things and everything else. Alex was the leader on the ice and Mike was the leader in the dressing room type thing. But uh, the the other places, Miko Koivu was uh, captain for a long time. I wasn't going to come in and upset that apple cart, uh, even though they have to make a new captain next year. And um, uh, Ryan Getzlaff was uh, already the captain in Anaheim, and he wasn't going anywhere anytime soon. So all those numbers or letters were were intact, which which is good. I'd rather them be intact than me have to come in here and Take a take the C off Joe Thornton and put it on somebody else just for the right. sake of it. I, I don't think it would have been a, a good thing to do. Right, right. You know, trust trust of the players is is paramount. I think in this day and age, they need to believe that you want them to be better and be their best player. Uh, how does that also correlate with your coaching staff when you come in as a head coach uh, and you? I assume have the ability to handpick who you want to be surrounded by uh, when you, when you create that team, how, what are you looking for and how, how do you, how are you building that puzzle? Um, are you talking about how the coaches? Yeah. The assistant players? coaching team now, right? Cause I would assume as a head coach, you have some say in who comes in uh, and, and fills those roles. Well, I did in Minnesota. Um, Chuck Fletcher said, uh, you know, you've got carte blanche, pick your assistants, pick this, uh, whatever you want. And, and, uh, I think for me, um, the number one thing is loyalty. <laughs> like, I mean, you don't want assistant coaches that are looking to take your your job. You know, I mean, you you want loyalty and you want uh, guys you know you can trust. And that was number one for me um, in Minnesota. So what I did is I picked uh, my best friend growing up was John Anderson, who was a very good coach in his own right. I think he won six different titles in the American league and in the international league. So to me, he was a no brainer. Um, And so, and he was an offensive guy that knew how to run the power play. So that was, that was fine. I picked him. Then the next guy, um, you know, it's always tougher to find a guy that's been around defensemen and is a, uh, uh, the forwards just seem to be an easier, easier find. But uh, I, you know, I looked around and, 
uh, Scott Niedermeyer phoned me and, and told me who I was with in Anaheim. And he told me that uh, Scott Stevens might want to get into, into coaching. And so I phoned Scott and I drove up to his place in New Jersey. We got along tremendously. We had the same ideas, the same thought process. So he, he wanted to try it. And uh, so I made him the assistant coach. Uh, unfortunately, uh, they had such a great spot in New Jersey and everything, and their kids were going to school in New York that after a year, he missed that more than he wanted to coach. Um, um, but for that year, that's the only time I've ever got a chance to pick two. Every mm -hmm. other year, uh, when I went up to Washington, they were already there. When I went to Anaheim, um, uh, I picked one, and uh, uh, Bob Murray picked the other, and then when he'd fire him, he would pick the the next guy. He never, I never got a chance to pick another guy. So I mean, yeah, interesting. But that's a story that I could talk for five hours about. But uh, I don't think it would go well over here right now. So uh, we'll we'll wait till I write the book on that one. Um, sure. yeah, but uh, uh, I think it's important that I think the head coach when he comes in, there might be somebody that. Uh, the the GM wants to keep, uh, but you should be able to pick everybody else. I think, and yeah. and with the the loyalty, the last thing you 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 want uh, to me as a coach is the GM picking his best friend or something to be the assistant because you know they're phoning each other on the on the phone all night long and you don't know what's you don't know what's being said. And I mean, it happened one time and. Uh, to me and you could see like the one assistant would be saying something in the day and if he was disagreeing with me and then the GM the next day would come in and say that use the same words verbatim and say the same thing and you knew where he was getting it from all the time and that didn't make for a great uh, relationship yeah no I was wondering because I mean that's a that has to be a tight-knit tight-knit group you, know, you have to trust each other right so, like you said loyalty would be big there you never mentioned the name Bob Wood and I and I just thought that that was somebody that seemed to be with you um you know even at the east coast level right that or... he, he, he was the one guy I, I picked all the time like I mean okay. uh, initially I picked him um he was he didn't want to uh coach right away he wanted to still play so when he was ready I picked him to be my assistant in Hershey and then um when uh um we moved one guy on in washington i picked bob to come up with me in washington and then when i went to anaheim uh bob was let go in washington i brought him to anaheim as well and then um he went to junior after that when he was let go in anaheim and um he went to buffalo for a year then once he was let go there and Scott Stevens uh, left, I brought him to Minnesota and he's still there. Yeah, no, that's uh, interesting. I, I have been looking into that recently and it seems like to me, it must be like, like again, that comfort level, that trust must be paramount, right? I mean, that's something that you want to keep close. You want to trust guys and know that, you know, they got your back and you got theirs. And and once you get those relationships, you I mean, why would you, why would you interchange them? I, I want to, before we run out of time, I definitely want to talk about you making that first step to the NHL, because I think from a human standpoint, there's a lot of stuff that's going to go on there. I talked briefly about my experience getting traded to Toronto and the human aspect of that, all these different dynamics that's going on outside of just being a hockey player, you know, so you get, you get the phone call and Hershey, 
with the interim, you know, designation, which I want to talk about too, you know, so you get your chance to the NHL for the first time in an interim scenario and you're walking into an NHL locker room with, you know, the likes of Alex Ovechkin and, and Nicholas Backstrom and these guys. And now you need to be Bruce Boudreaux and you need to believe in who Bruce Brodo is and that you can be successful at this level. What was that like? What was your mindset like walking into that environment? Well, it was twofold. Being a, a guy that had been in the minors all, a long time, the first question I asked George McPhee is, uh, when this internship is done, do I get my job back in in Hershey? Because, I mean, you, you see so many interim coaches, and then once uh, they're let go at the end of the year and somebody else comes in, they don't have, no longer have a job. So I wanted to make sure that I still had a job. But the first thing... Um, that it was funny. I walked in the dressing room and I looked around and I, uh, I'll even go before that. Um, I asked, uh, the assistants when I got in there, I said, well, you know, let's just go with your systems and, you know, let's go from there. And then I went back in the office and I said, the hell with it. This might be only my, my only chance. I went back in and I said, guys, I'll, I've changed everything. Uh, I'm going to run the practice this way. They have to hear it all from me. They have to learn my voice right now. So we're doing it. Everything changed. And uh, then I walked into the room and uh, looked around. I said, oh, my God, I'm coaching Alex Ovechkin. And uh, uh, it was pretty daunting. But when I got on the ice, the first thing I did, I had to get the respect. I think I would have got the respect of everybody Well, because of those seven players that I coached probably when I wasn't around there, the guys that didn't know me going, what's this guy like? What's this guy like? And they would have said good things. But the first thing I did was uh, uh, when Alex screwed up a drill as I stopped it and gave him crap. And I think that was such a big deal because the players thought, okay, he's not intimidated and he's doing things his way. We're going to watch. And I think Alex uh enjoyed it because i don't know if, if the previous coach had ever called him out at all and so calling alex out in the first uh, uh first practice was i think a huge thing for me and then the the second biggest thing that happened to me with this group was we played philadelphia two days after i got hired and uh we were doing the power play meeting and again dumb me i'm running the power play and um but I said, okay, listen, Alex, I don't want you to play where he, everybody knows he's played. I want you to play in the middle. He goes, why, coach? And I said, well, here's the thing. We're going to put Nick Backstrom on the sidewall, who was a first-year player and wasn't playing much. And I want to put Mike Green on, on where you, you stand. Because what's going to happen, I watch Philadelphia enough that um, they're going to all cover you. Okay? They're going to have two guys on you in the slot. So – we're going to fake that pass and give it to green and then green will shoot it in the empty net and we'll score a goal. So at the four minute mark, they get a power, they get a penalty. I tell these guys what to do and they go out and they do it perfectly. And Mike scores a goal and they all turn around and I said, see, I know my crap. I know my stuff. And I think it was just a real big point in them getting to say hey listen let's listen to this guy so i mean it could have gone wrong we might never have scored a goal and i would have looked like a jerk but we, we got lucky and we scored right away that's really cool do you think i think it's brilliant too your first question you know to george mcfee to say hey am i gonna have my job because sometimes having that plan b allows you to open yourself up 
and be who you really are because you're not being pr- protective, right? You're like, okay, this, I'm all in. Did you did you have the verbal go ahead to have carte blanche over the over the systems and, and to rock and roll? I mean, obviously you went through with it, but was that was that the directive from the get go? No, George said you coach the team the way you want to coach. Hope you're here a long time, and that's all I got, uh, all we we really talked about. And I said, okay, I'm going to run with it. I mean, he had been down to Hershey. He saw we won the cup the last year and um, and the year before and then went to the finals the, the next year. Um, and he's been in the room when I talking to the players and, and doing the thing. So he knew what I was all about and that I can get, uh, like I, I work a lot on, if you remember, like emotional stuff. Uh, I might not know the systems as well as anybody else and the ins and outs, but I thought I was pretty emotional, straight from the heart uh, kind of talker. And it really resonated with, with players. And so George liked that aspect of my, my coaching. And I mean, that's still what I do today. I uh, I think I've got less hair, but that's the way it is. I still do it. Yeah, it's uh, it's people first. I know that you were at that NHL coaches conference a little while ago. I think it was 2019, and that was Travis Green opened up and he said the person before the player, and I, that really resonated with me because he says sometimes it's hard to do, uh, you know, to put the player, but but I mean the person before the player. But when you do, he's like you're in that trust and you get the respect, and they're going to go to bat for you. And I think that you've you've emulated that your your entire coaching career. Uh, just to put a bow on that first season, and you know we're running out of time here to be from a minor league coach, to step into that environment, to turn that team around, to then winning the Jack Adams. Like, was that just like mind blowing for you? Like, and at what point did you think, holy smokes, like this is where I belong and this is where I'm going to stay. Like, how did that, how did that whole year come together? Well, I never had the confidence to say, this is where I'm going to stay. I mean, I've always been, when you've been in the minors, I think before that it was like almost 33 years in the minors. You you don't have the confidence that you're the best, but you have the work ethic that you try to be the best. Um, but it was, a, uh, you know, we just started winning. And uh, I remember telling them that, you know, in camp, I thought you guys were a great team. I don't know why they were dead last when I, picked them up they were 30th out of 30 teams and uh, we just kept rising and rising and rising and then we needed to win 12 out of the last 13 games and we did to make the playoffs by one to win the division and we had to win the last seven and we won the last seven to win the division by one point and uh, that was the mind you know you don't even know it when you're going through it how you look 10 back 10 years later and you go, how the hell did you do that? Like, I mean, or you, how did we do that as a team and uh, end up with 94 points when we had like nine after 21 games? Um, I don't even think we had nine. I think it was six points after 21 games. And and, um, and then you look back and the, the, the guys bought in, the goaltending was great. Um, the young guys like Mike Green and, uh, so far, it's just, you know, he scored 18 goals that year and they just came, they felt like uh, they could do anything, which is the way they felt in Hershey the, the previous year. And they just built on that. They were really good players that didn't know how good they were. I think I helped let them know that they were really good players because I kept the one thing I said after every game that we won is I told you you're a good team. You're a good team. Believe it. You're a good team. You're going to be a great team. And they started as the years kept going. They they kept believing that. And, you know, I've been using that 
sort of theme for every year I've coached. So, I mean, uh, making them believe that they're maybe better than they really are or making them believe that they're as good as they really are was really important. That's amazing stuff. You mean, you've been an amazing guest. I knew you would be. And I think that's a great way to tie this one off because belief and confidence in sports, well, in anything, in any walk of life is really allows you, the athlete, the person, the ability to step into their potential. I think that applies to coaches as well, having that belief. And you needed to have that belief in you to walk in through those doors and and turn the whole practice around and say, no, this is going to be my show. And uh, here we are, you know, years and years later. And, uh, you know, what a great career you have to show for it. So, Gabby, Bruce, thanks so much for taking the time today and sharing all this wisdom and experience with with the listeners. And uh, I really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks so much. Well, thanks so much. And uh, hopefully I'll be able to do it next year after coaching another year somewhere. That's Thank right. You. I wish you all the best with that. And I'm sure someone will pick you up. Thanks so it's much. Great. great talking to you, Jason. Take care. Hey there, everybody. Thanks so much for sticking with us to the end. I mean, how could you not, I guess, with a guy like Bruce uh, on the on the airways there? He is entertaining and he's fun. You know, I just, there's so many memories of him. And, and honestly, at the time, and he's the first one to admit it, and, and there's lots of players that would echo me that when he stepped foot into the AHL, I would not have thought, here's the guy with 15 years of the NHL in front of him as a coach like it just that wasn't my first impression and not because he wasn't good at his job it was just because he he is so unassuming in in the way he looks and the way he talks you know like he's not Pat Quinn he's he's not Mike Keenan he's not you know Barry Trotz these guys kind of have a way about them that's a bit intimidating and there's a presence and then Bruce kind of feels like he's you know, somebody that is your next door neighbor and is coming hanging out in your living room. And that was kind of the feeling when when uh, when he came to Lowell. And he'd be, we'd be on the road and, you know, he'd, his shirt would be untucked or he'd have a mustard stain in his tie or whatever. And he would, you know, he'd be firing us up. And that was, that was the way Bruce was. And that's kind of the way Bruce is. He's definitely more polished now um, as people do and become but he's still Bruce like he's still Gabby as his nickname is he's still just a great guy and after all the success he's had in the NHL after all the wins he's had he's still easy to talk to he he still will give you his opinion and he'll still do it in a really human and personal way so that was that was fun for me to kind of revisit that time in my career and to ask questions that I hope you guys found interesting and uh, and useful because my goodness if you can't learn something from a coach and an amazing player which we talked about too you know amazing coach amazing player struggled to get to the NHL now he did it as a coach like there's a lot of lessons there that we can pick up on so super cool it was awesome that we were able to do that and uh and yeah, as far as what's going on with me, I usually don't talk about me that much here and what we got going on in the background, but really excited with what I got going on in the uh, Up My Hockey parent group on Facebook. We have some amazing stuff going on. I've developed some awesome mindset training for kids. It's, uh, it's my unstoppable belief system that's going on in there. I have a character course that we've developed. I'm also bringing in experts in their fields. Uh, I have a mental toughness coach by the name of Shawnee Harley coming in and delivering some amazing content. I have Mike Shaw, who is uh, specializes in gratitude and resiliency, who's coming in and giving a workshop. 
there is so much stuff going on in there and I'm, and I'm providing this to these members of, of my parent group um, on a membership basis. And it's a really exciting time for me because the group has grown. It's a really engaged group and it's meant for parents of players who are navigating this space, right? This hockey space of how do we get our kids to be our best? How do we best support them on their way? Uh, you know, with, with something that they're passionate about, like we're, to have kids that are passionate about something in this day and age is something that parents are grateful for. Now we want to be able to support them. And I know personally how hard it is to do that journey, to become a hockey player, whether that's make the junior level, whether that's to make your midget team, to be a, to be a college player, or even to be a pro, it's hard, right? There's a lot of competition. There's a lot of stuff going on. And whether you're a parent who's been there and played or not, it's even harder if you haven't, right? So why do we do this alone? So one of the advantages in this day and age is to learn from others, which is what the podcast is about, but it's also what this Facebook group is about. It's about learning from me and my experiences. It's about learning from the guests that I bring in for the live interviews, the specialists in their field to help clear, uh, clear the air, right, on what's going on so we can best support our kids. Then there's also units in there, like I said, about how to give these kids, these these athletes, the opportunity to make the most of, of what they have in front of them, which is an amazing sport called hockey with so many great things at the end of these streets that they can that they can walk down. So I'm really excited about that. If you want to check it out, please do up my hockey uh, Facebook group. You can also go to my website, www.myhockey.com. Um, there's details there about the membership opportunity and uh, we're going to be releasing that in the coming weeks so check it out once again thanks so much for tuning in uh, everyone out there play hard and keep your head up cheers